Social capital is more precious than financial capital. Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the show, we have Dr. Thomas Lee. Dr. Lee is a cardiologist and chief medical officer at Press Ganey. He is also on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health. He's a renowned published scholar and author and works as the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, Catalyst Journal. So let's begin. Dr. Thomas Lee, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, In particular, you are such a prolific writer in the area of healthcare leadership, as well as talking about your new book, uh, Healthcare's Path Forward. But before we jump into that, I'd love to know a little bit more about your background, uh, where you grew up, and how you first became involved in medicine. Uh, well, I am a child of immigrants, and uh, my parents came from China in 1948, and they raised uh, my two brothers and I in uh, outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We all worked very hard at our public high school, and we all went to Harvard College, and then we all got turned down by Harvard graduate schools and went to Cornell's equivalent, and we all came back to Boston for our training. And my older brother's a lawyer, but not my younger brother and I are internal medicine, cardiology, and we've stayed on. I'm still seeing patients at Brigham Women's Hospital uh, every Friday in primary care and uh, a little bit of cardiology for, for my primary care patients. Wow, what an amazing family. Um, were there any key lessons that you took away from those early experiences? It was good to get the feeling that there's no job that was too big for you to try to take on. Uh, but we also found out there are a lot of people who are really, really talented out there, and no one should assume that they're just going to get everything they want or take on leadership roles that they want just because uh, they've got great credentials. So we all had that experience of being turned down, and we went off and we worked hard, and and things worked out fine. So uh, I, I think that we did learn early on that you're going to get disappointed uh, every now and then, but you shouldn't get crushed by it. And you should, if you work hard and do a good job, things tend to work out. It sounds like you're speaking to the concept of resilience. We have a cousin who's a famous psychologist, uh, Angela Duckworth, and she's written about grit and she's got a famous TED talk and and so on. And I think that when you're an immigrant uh, or an immigrant's child, you do get this message of you have to be resilient. You know, the famous Japanese saying, you know, get knocked down seven times to get up eight. So resilience is more than being tough. Uh, It's also learning and being ready to try new things. And so when you started out as a junior doctor, how was leadership modeled to you? Well, I I would say two things, Uh, one soft and gooey and the other sort of very practical and strategic. Uh, The soft and gooey one is that I I learned what trust was about. at the very beginning, in my first couple of weeks of internship, my, my senior resident said to me, you never say no to a colleague. When one of your co-interns, co-residents ask you to do something, unless there's some very important reason why you can't, you always say, yes, I will. And you know, one of the uh, operational definitions of trust that I learned from 
a sociologist, Ronald Byrd, you know, is that it's confidence you're going to be treated fairly in circumstances you haven't even thought of yet. I want to be in relationships where I don't need to know the whole story. I know I'm going to say yes. Ultimately, trust, respect, these are bi-directional relationship characteristics. And I think most of us have that with our families and, and, and so on, but we want that professionally as well. And then the other more practical strategic thing, which is out of date today, I think, uh, is that when I was you know, coming along in my training and starting my career, which was you know, the 1980s, uh, at that time, if you wanted to have impact and be a leader, you you basically played the academic medicine game. And, and that's what I did. And I, I went into research and wrote a lot of papers, some of them pretty good, some of them not as good, but became a, a professor at a relatively young age. And in those days, people would get promoted into leadership roles for the wrong reason. I mean, I got promoted into being a leader because I was a professor and people didn't dislike me. Today, you actually have to get, you have to learn something about how do you actually manage and, and how do you actually perform and how do you actually lead? How do you actually improve? Those weren't the criteria when I got asked to take on more and more leadership roles in the old days. But I knew I wanted to have impact and I knew that to have impact, I wanted to be you had to get promoted, and that would meant writing research papers. Uh, so that's what I set out to do, and it took me down a path uh, that worked out fine. Uh, it probably is not the right path to, that I would recommend today, but it, it was the path for my time. I knew I wanted to have impact, and if I wanted to have impact, um, I had to head down a certain road. I really, um, I really appreciate that honest reflection on the paths that you took. Uh, as well as emphasizing how important trusted relationships are, uh, particularly early in your in your career, and how they can really dictate the direction that you travel in in, in medicine, and and therefore reflecting from a leadership perspective how important it is when you have those engagements with uh, more junior staff. I wondered if you could uh, talk a little bit more about some of the transition points. Uh, you had when you uh, took on some of these new roles? With a fairly clear conscience, I didn't do any of any of the transitions in a calculated way because it was all about getting, getting power. I had an idea of what I wanted to accomplish. You know, I wanted to make healthcare better. I didn't want to make it affordable and I wanted to make it safer. Uh, in order to do those things, uh, I started out, you know, first I was writing papers uh, writing paper, risk stratification type papers. It was clinical epidemiology's early days. And that was, that meant doing good research with good data collection, careful, thoughtful analyses, prospective validations of risk stratification algorithms. And a lot of that work is still being used. The, the revised cardiac risk index is, you know, that was work I did but the goal wasn't just for me to get promoted. The goal was to have useful research. So I started working with my colleagues on what are the right management strategies. Having developed those strategies and published papers on them, then I was faced with the fact that no one was doing what I thought they should do, even when they agreed that the papers were good and the strategies were good. And even when they said, we're going to do this, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it reliably. 
So over like, uh, you know, several years during my late 30s, uh, I began to realize that my real interest was evolving from cardiovascular issues to how do you get people to do things? You know, how do you get people to do things that they know they should do, but don't feel like being completely reliable about doing? When I was turning 40, I was recognizing, yes, this is actually what I'm really interested in. And that became my direction for, you know, what's probably the rest of my career. A couple of really interesting points there, particularly around highlighting the challenges with implementing best practice. I think often we spend a lot of time uh, planning and engaging with stakeholders, but the implementation side is is huge and people need to feel like they have uh, buy-in and ownership over these, um, the, not only the problems, but the solutions too. I also like your um, reflections on career development around being problems focused and how it's evolved as your understandings of those problems evolved too. Now, I want to move on to uh, leadership and management. We've, we've mentioned those two terms a couple of times and I wondered if you would perhaps elaborate and describe the difference between those two terms. I would make the distinction uh, between operational effectiveness and strategy. Basically, operational effectiveness, which I think is what managers do, that's doing a better job of what you currently do. Uh, you know, hiring good people, trying to get more efficient, making sure you're not, you know, causing injury with them. And operational effectiveness is most of what leaders slash managers do. And, and there was a time in healthcare where operational effectiveness was really about all you needed. Because if you did a good job and you were constantly trying to get better, you could pretty much demand the resources you need to do what you needed to do. Um, but since the turn of the century in the United States, uh, resources have started to become more and more constrained. And just doing a good job is not enough. And this is where strategy comes in. Strategy is about making choices, and choices are painful. When you make choices, you make someone mad, one of your colleagues and your friends uh, who's working very hard. So in general, people did not want to make choices, but as resources started to get tight, then people in healthcare realized, well, we have to actually have a strategy so we can make choices. Michael Porter boils strategy down to two simple questions. The first is, what are you trying to do for whom? That, that implies who's your customer and what's your value proposition? How are you making things better for someone? The second, how are you going to be different? Because if you're going to do the same thing the same way for everyone, then ultimately you're going to be competing on price. And and if you're competing on price, then you're going to have a very thin or no margin at all. You can't thrive if you've got no margin. You can't hire new people. You can't invest in new technologies and so on. So Porter laid out those two key questions for strategy. And then he came up with the idea of the value chain. The key assets to value chains are they, they focus management's attention 
on those key activities that really matter most for what matters most, which is creating value for your customer. And it tells management, don't give so much attention to stuff that is not on the value chain. Competitive differentiation almost always comes from from rearranging the value chain or managing the interfaces among the activities in the value chain. So those kind of insights as to what leaders do, you know, make choices, even when choices are going to make people mad, lay out with clarity what you're trying to do for your customers and how you're going to do it. That's the kind of responsibilities that go beyond operational effectiveness. So Porter and I both feel that like for people who are in senior roles in healthcare organizations, 90% of what they're doing is should be management and operational effectiveness. And if you don't have great operational effectiveness, you are, you're doomed. You're, you're doomed to failure. You can have the most brilliant strategy in the world, but if you're inept in executing on your operations, you're in big trouble. But I think in this day and age, having excellent operational effectiveness, that is to say good managers, is is what it takes to survive. And if you're going to thrive, you need an excellent strategy. Yeah, I think that's a great set of distinctions. In particular, if we focus on the manager's side of things, uh, understanding what their goals are, uh, particularly around reducing variability, can help uh, frontline staff better understand uh, and align the, the kind of goals. It can always be a real challenge because uh, the frontline uh, dealing with very different patients all the time in complex scenarios, it can be easy to default to uh, perhaps a way of saying that you know the variability is, is just in the nature of medicine. Uh, but of course, we do know there are certain scenarios that happen time and time again. And so we can apply uh, you know guidelines and quality standards and uh, processes uh, to, to help reduce that variability and 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 reach that um, those collective goals around quality and safety. Coming to the leadership side of things, I think what you're highlighting is that the healthcare system is in a broader, dy- more dynamic, more complex system. Uh, that is our society, and so uh, political changes, policy changes, new technologies, uh, new diseases. All of these kinds of things uh, have the potential of, of really disrupting uh, healthcare institutions. And so leaders need to keep an eye on the horizon to ensure that there is uh, alignment uh, of the institution so that they can be adaptable, uh, sustainable, and truly thrive. I think the final piece here, which is really interesting around the, around the value chain, and I think we often think about this idea, but maybe don't always have the language to articulate it, which is really just focusing in um, uh, on what really matters to patients, uh, stripping away the less uh, useful features, you know, starting with a blank canvas and, and thinking and reimagining uh, what's possible. Why is, it that, why is it that we are feeling like we're having to reimagine things? Well, you know, you're bringing up some really important issues. Uh, Why isn't healthcare better than it currently is? And, you know, it's full of good people who are working hard. So, you know, what's wrong with us? You know, what I've learned uh, when markets fail, that, you know, there's a reason. And I think that we have not really had 
the laser-like focus on strategy, you know, what is the value we're trying to create for patients? Instead, we've been distracted. The big, the big distraction is related to the fee-for-service system. And when money is being paid for volume of services, then that becomes what everything gets organized around, as opposed to being organized around what will it take to create value for patients, you know, as efficiently as possible. So, you know, for the younger people listening, I would say, don't let yourself get distracted by the stuff that doesn't really matter. Uh, use the, the, the Porter concepts of strategy. Think about who is your customer? How are you going to make things better? What are the critical activities to make things better for that customer? And don't get distracted by the games. Um, I, I draw a distinction between game playing and value creation. Game playing is where you want to get paid as much money as you can for what it is that you're currently doing. And I actually always want to have excellent game players on my side because you know I want my organization to get as much as it can for what we're doing. But value creation is where you change what you're doing in order to increase value for your customer. And that is to say, make things better for your patients. I, I think particularly for young physicians, I want to emphasize, we really have very little to offer in game playing. But I would say that doctors and clinicians, we have everything to contribute to the value creation type work. I think that's a really important point around distractions, I think. Uh, financial incentives, uh, new technologies uh, can all take us away from, you know, the core values and intrinsic motivations that actually got us into this field in the first place and got us to be interested in the problems that we really want to solve. And I think that there are probably some people get, go in the field thinking, I want to make as much money as possible. Uh, but I think that most of us are sustained, drawn to the field and sustained by uh, the psychological rewards of feeling like you're helping patients. And if we want to help all the patients who come our way, healthcare has got to be affordable. So I actually think that making healthcare more efficient so that it can be accessible to people, that for many of us, that is also something that makes us feel good about ourselves when we're driving home at night. Uh, uh, so I do think this creation of value for customers is a noble thing to do. Uh, I, I actually think strategy is noble because it's about creating value for a customer. And uh, so I would say constantly be thinking about strategy and that's going to take you down the road to thinking about how are you creating value for some customer and that will make you prouder of your work in the long run. Now, you've mentioned the word customer a couple of times and often clinicians refer to the, the people that they're looking after as patients. Um, I wondered, what, are, what do we need to be thoughtful about when we're using those different terms and uh, you know, would you say that there is a, an important distinction between them? This distinction doesn't really matter. You know, they're human beings. And we're all functioning more like consumers today than we did before the pandemic. You know, we're all going we're all going online and checking things out more before making choices. I think that one of the useful distinctions 
Uh, consumers are people who feel like they have choices. Patients, I know someone is a patient when they're lying on a table in front of me, uh, sedated, and I'm about to do a cardiac catheterization. I'm about to stick a catheter into their femoral artery, and uh, and uh, they don't have a whole lot of choice. But, I mean, they're human beings, and regardless of what phase they are in uh their episode of care, they're the same person. I I think that customers and consumers, they're people who know they have choices and they are going to exercise some autonomy in making choices. Patients usually don't have choices. You know, they're, they've got, there's an imbalance information. Uh, We physicians know much more and we know it and they know it too. We actually want to try to build their trust in that phase when they're they're in the consumer customer phase because that that trust me my institution when they come to see me uh that's going to make the interaction go better so i i think there are things like reputation management on the internet which i used to think it was a dark science now i actually feel like it's part of building trust it's not just about capturing market share uh is are people are people going to walk in the door and think I'm about to have a five-star experience. I should trust this person because look at what everyone else is saying about him out there. I think it's it's really interesting when we uh, reflect and and dissect language sometimes because you know different words can have different connotations to people, and I think I'm still wrestling with this language because of some of the more negative connotations with with customers and consumerism and those kinds of things. But I think what what's being highlighted here is actually a respect for autonomy um, that people, customers, uh, human beings have choice and that that choice is is vital for uh, people to be able to exercise their, their autonomy. And I think it's important to reflect that our systems don't often give people any choice. Um, and so we uh, interpersonally need to be better at, at facilitating that choice and empowering people, uh, but that also comes at a system level as well. I actually think that the last few years is making all of us deeper, better people. I think we have a deeper understanding of what it means to really show respect to people and uh, and what it means for us to feel respected. If you had asked me five, ten years ago, I would have said, yeah, of course, I'm respectful to everyone. Uh, but to really respect people, you listen to them. You really listen to them and you respect their ability to have opinions and to make choices. If, if you were to send me a relative or a friend to take care of and they needed an operation, uh, I would probably say, well, here are two or three surgeons who I think very highly of and, and who I, I trust in our, and I think are nice people too. And I would say, why don't you take a look online, see who you like. And, um, and if, if one of them appeals to you more than the others, um, I'll reach out to them. That's what I would do. You know, we all do that for family members and friends. Well, that's what we should be doing for everybody. And uh, that's what I routinely do now. I, I certainly went through a phase when I would make a referral and a patient would go, can I go see so-and-so? And I would get cranky. I don't get cranky anymore. I, I, I want to respect people's autonomy, respect their 
ability to form opinions and then help them make good decisions, but not be heavy handed. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, honest reflection around enhancing the, the patient's uh, autonomy and choice is a great way to you know, foster the relationship between doctor and patient. Yeah, and I actually think understanding that these are partnerships here, they're relationships, and that respect is something that's a two-way interaction, and that trust is something that is a two-way interaction. You know, we have very clear data in my work at Prescani showing that if patients feel that we respect them and we trust them and we believe them, they are more likely to trust us because they feel that they've been heard. And the idea that it's not about me, but it's a characteristic of the relationship, I don't think I got that five or 10 years ago. Uh, But the pandemic's stresses have made these kind of things more explicit. Awareness that you're learning things and becoming a better person as uh, in response to the experience we're having, that's part of what makes life worth living. Yes, healthcare always has a way of humbling us and offering uh, opportunities to, to learn. And I think when, when senior leaders express that, uh, particularly um, out loud, it invites others on the team to reflect on, on their own potential uh, biases or blind spots. And, uh, and that's how we kind of all, all learn together. So one thing I'd love for us to jump into now is your new book called Healthcare's Path Forward. In the beginning, you speak of a number of crises and, you know, we've had lots of crises before. So why is now different? We have learned from the last few years that we have to be resilient. We have to be able to be highly reliable uh, and not just highly reliable with the low level of chaos that we have as part of medicine, uh, but highly reliable with the big time chaos that gets introduced by uh, things like a pandemic, climate change, social unrest. And you know, the phrase I stuck in the book was, we have to be an HRO, NMW, like high reliability organization, no matter what. How do we keep focused on the value we're trying to create for our patients when we can't see them face to face? You know, there are natural disasters related to climate change that are in, they're changing uh, the way patients you know reach us or, and what they come in with. We have to have a resilience that allow, enables us to hold on to what it is that we really love about medicine. You know, in the, at the beginning of the book, I talk about the last few years and how we responded. But then in the middle of the book, I, the middle section, I go, uh, okay, well, what are the changes that are going to endure once this pandemic is over? And, and once George Floyd's murder is a little further in the rearview mirror, and it's clear things are never going back. And uh, therefore, you know, what are the challenges that are going to go on? And we're going to have trust challenges from patients, trust challenges with our workforce, the, the concern about equity and inclusion 
is going to be a major issue forever. We now understand that safety means, you know, not just physical safety from physical injury, but safety from emotional harm and financial harm. And then the changes in the way consumers behave, you know, that's going to go on forever. Given these ongoing challenges and then the, what are what's the value chain of activities that leaders should focus on and make sure they're they're improving on. Uh, that's what I try to turn to in the third part of the book. And you know, it's trust, building trust among patients, building trust among your employees. You know, having a deeper and broader sense of what safety means, equity and inclusion, and understanding consumerism and an understanding of new payment models. I would say that leaders should be thinking about those six things, and they they can't ignore any of them. A lot of interesting points in there i think you know your emphasis around how equity is such a big part of trust building um you know if you don't think you're going to be treated uh, fairly or your colleague be treated fairly or your family in the system or neighbor etc you know you're not going to want to go to that system or, or work in that institution i think also reorientating equity is underpinning uh, what high quality and very safe care is um is a great point too now, I wanted to, to pick up on the trust piece in respect to workforces. Um, obviously, immense number of challenges, as we've kind of touched on. What do you think institutions and organizations could be doing to better build and maintain trust with their workforce? Well, you know, this is the existential crisis that most organizations are having. And we have a ton of data on this at Press Ganey because we measure not only how patients feel, but how the workforce is feeling for a lot of American healthcare. And there's good news, but we're actually seeing signs of a virtuous cycle emerging where people feel pride in their organization. And that leads to them working together better and, that, and making the care better. And that leads to patients being more grateful and that makes people prouder and that, that virtuous cycle is also clearly going on. Uh, we're seeing a real flattening in, in the decline that we've seen in how engaged doctors, nurses, and others feel in their organizations. And uh, it, it, there has been a real decline in the, in the first two and a half years of the pandemic. But in the last several months, it's really stopped declining or really declined much more slowly. Uh, we're seeing resilience of individuals actually increasing. You know, we break down resilience into two different issues uh, in our in our question in our surveys. This is all done by psychologists who have really studied this stuff a lot. Uh, but the two different dimensions are your activation and your decompression abilities. So, how excited are you by what it is that you're doing? And then your ability to unwind and relax and recover so the next day you can come back and do your best again. Uh, they're both important and they're both related to how resilient people are. The good news is that we found throughout the pandemic that activation did not go down. The people who come to healthcare are good people and they are they're proud of the of the work that we're that we're doing. Decompression took a beating during the early years of the pandemic. 
But now we have found in the last year, decompression scores have started to go up. People are um, have either figured out how to adapt, and, and they are. Now, it's not the same story everywhere. We, we've been finding as we look at organizations across the country, there's a spreading of the pack where basically the good places are getting better and the bad places are getting worse. So that leadership really matters. Co- culture really matters. And, and I emphasize this because, you know, people who are listening should know you can make a difference. You know, your organization situation is not just dictated by fate. You know, you can shape how you're, how the people around you are going to respond and how you're going to respond. And, uh, and, you know, we have also found that people stay with an organization for a variety of reasons, a, there are a variety of risk factors for people leaving, but the number one factor is not money. The number one factor is pride. How proud are they? There are really three types of pride that we measure. There's pride in the organization. There's pride in the work that you do. And then there's pride in the team that you're working on. They all matter. Then after there's the pride issues, there's you know how engaged you are with what the organization's trying to do. And then you get into very personal response issues of resilience. Like even that you may be proud and engaged, but you may be destroyed personally. And um, and so that's where measuring activation and decompression are things that we look at. And we find that there are places where it seems like there's a vicious cycle that's still at work. And then there are other places where it seems like the virtuous cycle has kicked in and they're actually getting better and better engagement. It's really helpful to hear that there are some virtuous cycles going on that organizations can can revert some of the challenges that they have and that there are some you know core human emotions to focus on on you know what would make someone proud to work at this institution and how do we ensure that people have the freedom uh, within their roles to engage with the types of um, work that they want to be doing I think in some sense it seems kind of obvious when you sound say it out loud and obviously the the devil's in the in the execution but uh, I think it's important to highlight one thing I would pick up on here is around organizations needing to to go to their workforce and sit down and and deeply listen to uh, what their needs are well you know and um you know i don't want to do a sales pitch for prescani uh you know here uh and i think everyone listening to this podcast knows that i work for a for-profit company that works in this space uh but having said that you know i'll say some things which may uh, relates to the kind of work we do, uh, which is to really listen to people. It's an obviously good thing to do. And it's not only important to do because you learn things, but you have to be, you build trust by being transparent. Uh, when people know that you're listening, that is a key part of trust. You know, that three-part model for for trust, that comes from Frances Fry at Harvard Business School. She has a fantastic TED Talk. Um, that's F-R-E-I. It's one of my favorite TED Talks. And in that talk, she makes the point of, yes, leaders need to 
leaders who want to be trusted need to have empathy, understand what's going on uh, with people. Uh, they have to be authentic. It has to be the real you. And then they have to have logic, a clear plan that's well thought out for what to do. But they not only need those three things, they need transparency around those three things. Because if it's, you may be empathic, but if no one knows you're empathic, that's not going to help you down the trust road. You may have a great plan, but if no one knows you have a plan, you know, that doesn't help you with, with trust. So listening to people uh, so you can, so you have a chance of being empathic, uh, you, people have to know you're listening. Now, I would say that five years ago, people would show they were listening by doing leadership walk rounds. And, you know, they would show their face, they would walk around the floors and they would feel like they were showing that they were listening and that they were good people. That's not enough anymore. And, and technology enables us to listen much more deeply than we could, much more effectively. We not only can like do pulse surveys, you know, with, you know, using smartphones and so on, uh, you know, and get information much more cheaply. Uh, but, but we can do things uh, like use AI and natural language processing to, uh, to analyze comments, narrative data, to get deeper at the issues that really matter to people. We can do virtual focus groups. So without all the pain and expense of getting a bunch of people together, you can get a bunch of people together online and, um, and virtual focus group technologies make this go very smoothly. And you can do virtual crowdsourcing so that, uh, yeah, there are probably a hundred ideas for what would make the lives of nurses better, but you can't do a hundred things. Uh, let's see what our nurses working in our ICU think the top three are. Uh, and uh, so the ability to get deeper uh, information and broader information, you know, is that's really an essential part of listening today. I think it's so important for there to be a deep commitment and authentic approach when it comes to this um, ongoing project of of listening, of um, relationship building because I think everyone is, is really discerning now. We know when things are shallow um, and hollow and I think that um, if we want to, to get the buy-in, to uh, build the trust, to build momentum, um, that's, that's the first part. The second part is then now the co-creation side, uh, creating those priorities together and working on those solutions too. You know, and I think you're bringing that up is a really important point in that, um, uh, yes, of course, when you think about it for a second, you realize uh, that if you're not being transparent with what you're doing, uh, then you're not going to be building trust in people. Uh, but I think it's, it's an obvious thing to say, but it's an important thing to say because most of us, you know, entered... The, the last several years thinking, well, of course, people should trust us. We're good people. We're hardworking. Uh, they should trust us. But we're living in a time where trust is under attack, uh, you know, often deliberately under attack by, by people with not so great motivations. So in this era, we have to build trust. We have to think about trust and build it in, in, in relentless ways. And 
And, and you know, I, you know, trust is a basic currency of social capital. The, you know, so where social capital is what enables your organization to do things it couldn't otherwise do. You know, we all know what financial capital is. It's the money that enables your organization to do things it couldn't otherwise do. You know, there's someone with a title of CFO in every organization who is thinking relentlessly and pinching every penny uh, to amass financial capital. I actually think we need to have the same discipline uh, and apply to social capital, to building trust. You know, the same relentless thinking about how can I maximize uh, trust and social capital in this interaction, the way I want to maximize, you know, financial capital. I, I think for the younger people listening to this, I would say uh, social capital is more precious than financial capital. Uh, you can get money, you know, loaned to you by the government or banks or you know, investment organizations. Uh, and uh, there's always a way to find money, uh, but no one can create social capital for your organization. You're the only ones who can do it. And so you've got to be in that role of, you are the, the CFO for your little part of the organization for creating social capital. And you should be thinking about building it all the time. I think that's a great note for us to end on. Dr. Thomas Lee, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, John. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.